0: Trusting Jesus is hard. Trusting Jesus is hard. So let's just all admit that, knowing that we are about to look at the chapter in the Bible that stresses faith. So I'm admitting this truth to you today. Trusting Jesus is hard for me, for reals. Trusting Jesus is hard because it requires us to trust God's promises more than our perceptions, more than what we see or feel. We're called to trust when we can't see. We're called to trust God as we walk into the unseen and as we walk with God into the unknown. It's true. We walk by faith and not by sight, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7. But if we're honest, walking by faith is not easy. Believing what we cannot see is hard. Trusting Jesus is hard. For reals, y'all. Of course, that doesn't mean that God is untrustworthy as if he can't be trusted. God is trustworthy. God is faithful to his promises. God is trustworthy. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us. We are fallen, broken sinners. And it's just easier to worry, isn't it? It's just easier to stress. I've never had a problem where it's like, I'm just really... You know, I don't struggle with worry today. It's really hard for me to worry. It's like, it's easy. It's easy for me to stress. It's easy for me to get worked up and, and lose sleep and not be able to eat, lose my appetite. So the problem is not with God. The problem is with us that we are fallen, broken sinners who still deal with indwelling sin. And so please understand that all of the people that are being commended for their faith in Hebrews chapter 11 they would all tell you that it was not easy they fought the good fight of faith as paul says in 1 Timothy 6:12 it was a fight for them. It was it wasn't easy for the people in Hebrews chapter 11. It was a fight to believe the promises of God. And what we saw 2 weeks ago in chapter 10 actually continues into chapter 11 this morning. We are awaiting our future reward, which is being with Jesus for eternity. And so this whole chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 focuses on that. These people in Hebrews chapter 11 were all looking forward to being with Jesus when they died. But this chapter also does not avoid the realities of living by faith in this fallen, broken world. Hebrews chapter 11 does not shy away from the fact that trusting Jesus is hard. But Hebrews 11 also reminds us that we are a people of faith. And because we are a people of faith, our big idea this morning is this, trust what God says over what you see. Disciples of Jesus are called to trust what Jesus says in his word over what they see or what they perceive or what they feel. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11. The Christian life is one where we always have to be reminded to trust what God says in his word over and against what we see or perceive with our own eyes. This past week, I had Heather recite Romans 8.28 to me. Or she' sitting on the bed, and she said it to me. And I said, I need to hear that again. Like, I just needed to hear God's word from someone else. Not me reading it, not me reciting. It. I needed another voice outside of me to say God's word to me. So she said Romans 8.28 to me, and then I said, do it again. And so she did it again, and I said, I need to hear it one more time please read it one more time. Now, why would I do that? Because trusting Jesus is hard. Because disciples are called to trust what Jesus says over what we see. Following Jesus means that we are called to believe his word over and over and over and over again and not what we see and not what we feel. And so Hebrews 11 is all about trusting God's promises over our perceptions. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 1 and hear the word of the trustworthy God that we love and serve. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible." You know, the preacher will now spell out for us what faith is, and it's re- he's really just expanding what he talked about in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 34 to 35, when he said this to the Hebrews. He said, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So the words you knew, the words know, and the words confidence in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 34 through 35, they're now called faith and conviction here in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. And so this knowing, this confidence, this faith, this conviction, they are just other ways of saying that we trust God, that we have faith in God. We trust that we have a great reward in the gospel, namely Jesus. And so what the preacher of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 11 is giving us a brief survey of the Old Testament and how God's people have always suffered and yet they still had faith. The preacher is going to drop a few names here and show us how God's people have always gone through these perplexing, bewildering times, and yet they still trusted in God's promises, knowing that they had a reward in heaven, knowing that there was more than this life that we experience. And so the preacher reminds us in verse 1 that faith is being assured that God is faithful to his promises in spite of what we see. In spite of what is happening in our lives. Faith is trusting Jesus no matter what happens in our life. It was by faith, he says, that the Old Testament saints persevered. They trusted that they would receive their commendation from God. And it is by faith that we believe, he says too, that God simply spoke this world into existence. God spoke and and created out of nothing. We believe that. God spoke and created out of nothing. And if his word is powerful enough to create the Milky Way, and if his word, the word from his mouth, is powerful enough to create the planets, and if his word out of his mouth is powerful enough to create stars, and if the word out of his mouth is powerful enough to create aliens, now you're listening, aren't you? No, I don't believe that God created aliens. I do not believe that God created aliens. But you know who did? Charles Spurgeon. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon believed that God created aliens and they must be out there somewhere on some planets, for reals. But the point here is that if we believe that God spoke everything in the universe into existence, then we can trust the promises that he has spoken to us In his word. And that's exactly what the Old Testament saints did. They trusted God's promises. In spite of what they had seen. Look at verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith though he died. He still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Preacher brings up Abel here. Abel offered a bloody sacrifice because that is what God requires for sinners to be made right with him. And that's why Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable to God. Cain did not bring a bloody sacrifice. Cain brought some fruits and vegetables. There was no blood with his sacrifice. And so God did not accept his sacrifice. But Abel, trusting that God knew best, obeyed and brought the appropriate bloody sacrifice and he was declared righteous. And this is why Abel still speaks today. Abel's sacrifice was pointing us to Jesus. Abel was looking to Jesus whose blood alone cleanses sinners. And so Abel speaks today because he reminds us that in order for sinners to be declared righteous, They have to have faith and trust that Jesus died a bloody death in their place. And then the preacher also mentions that Enoch lived a life of faith and trust. Enoch walked with God, which just means that he trusted God. God was his treasure. He had this relationship with Yahweh, with God. And we read in Jude 14 that Enoch preached about the coming judgment to the peers to his peers in his day. So Enoch walked with God and Enoch spoke out in an evil, wicked society. Now, why would Enoch risk his life to speak out and call sinners to repentance? Why would he do that? Here's why. Because just like the Hebrews, Enoch knew that he had a better possession when he died. He knew that if they killed him for preaching the truth, then he had a better possession. In fact, They never got that chance to kill Enoch because Enoch didn't die a natural death. God just took him. The Lord just one day reached down and yanked Enoch's spirit out of his body. And his spirit was ushered into God's presence. But what happened to Enoch's body? Well, verse 5 says it was never found. It went somewhere. Maybe it was left in a field somewhere and nobody found it. Maybe it was left in a cave. We don't know. But his body returned to dust. But his spirit was just yanked out of his body. And he went to be with the Lord. But while he lived, Enoch was commended as having pleased God. But was this commendation based on Enoch's behavior? Was he just a good person? Was he commended because he was a good, morally upright person? No, the preacher says that it was by his faith. The righteous are always justified by faith and not by works. That's Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 3, Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 3. The righteous are always justified by faith, not by works, not by what we do. But then the preacher tells us in verse 6 that it is impossible to please God without faith. In order to please God like Abel and Enoch, you have to believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You cannot please God if you don't believe he exists. And if you think he doesn't reward those who seek him. And what is the reward when we seek God? God is the reward. Jesus is the reward. I want Jesus. I don't want trinkets. I don't want other stuff. I want Jesus. I want more of Jesus when I seek Jesus. I'm not interested in all these other things. I want more of him in my life. Because he's my treasure. And when we seek him, we get him. The reward For the people in Hebrews, and the reward for us Christians is being with Jesus. The reward is experiencing and enjoying the new heavens and the new earth. The reward is having a resurrected, glorified body that will never ever sin again. That is the reward that we look to. That's the reward that Abel was looking to. That's the reward that Enoch was looking to. But we don't see that reward right now. But we believe it, just like Noah did. God warned Noah about what was coming, and even though Noah could not see it with his eyes, he trusted the Lord, the preacher of Hebrews says. He built the ark, he warned people, and he became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. So I think Abel and Enoch and Noah would tell us to stop looking at what we see, to stop looking at what we might lose in this life, and to start looking at what we will gain To stop looking at what we might lose, what we might forfeit, what we might have to give up. And instead, to start focusing on and trusting in what we will gain. And that is exactly what Abraham did. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham was called to leave his family behind, called to leave his friends behind and go to a new place, a foreign place, somewhere he had never been before. He didn't know if they had a Chick-fil-A there or not. I mean, I'd have brought that up. I'll go wherever you want, Lord, if there's a Chick-fil-A. And he left not knowing where he was going. And so Abraham's life of following Yahweh was one of taking unpredictable turns. Everywhere Abraham turned, it was unpredictable. He had to leave his family behind and move to a new place. He became a father when he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. Imagine being 90 or 100 years old and waking up in the middle of the night and changing a diaper and having to give a baby a bottle. Sarah and Abraham believed God's promise, even though they were very old, and they ended up having as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand by the seashore, and we are included in that. But when their baby boy Isaac grew up, they had to trust God again because Yahweh told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And so, Abraham and Sarah's life was also very dangerous, it was difficult. And it required years and years and years and years of waiting. And it was heartbreaking too. And it was all unpredictable. Why? Because God is unpredictable. You never know what he is going to ask you to do next. And you have to learn anew to trust him. Listen, Grace, when you sign up to follow Jesus You sign up for an unpredictable life. You sign up for one unpredictable turn after another. You sign up for the unseen. You sign up for the unknown. And you must be able to bear uncertainty if you are to follow Jesus. Please let me say that again. You must be able to bear uncertainty if you are to follow Jesus as a disciple. This means that there will be many times in your life where you have to trust and it will be hard. There will be many times when Jesus calls you to something and you have to follow him in obedience, not knowing where the provision is going to come from next. Uncertainty will come knocking on your door when you follow Jesus. Your plans will fall through unforeseen circumstances will occur and they will captivate your heart. And it will be hard to sleep. And it will be hard to eat. And it will be hard to focus on anything. And when these times come, we will be tempted to fear because our earthly security is being threatened. But here's the good news of the gospel. God is in control And he is with you as you face uncertainties. Yes, you sign up for one unpredictable turn after another when you sign up to follow Jesus. Yes, you sign up for the unseen. You sign up for the unknown. And it's difficult. It's a fight of faith. Believing what we cannot see is hard. But you are not alone. You are not alone with whatever it is that you are going through in your life right now. Jesus is with you wherever he calls you to and to whatever he asks you to do. Even when it feels hopeless or you are uncertain about what will happen next. So discipleship is signing up for the unseen. Discipleship is signing up for the unknown. It's signing up for a lot of uncertainty. But you are never alone. And when you find your plans and your directions getting redirected and rerouted, it is then that you realize who is really in charge of your life. Before we begin to understand what God is doing In our lives, our circumstances can look wrong. And that's why it's a fight of faith. And that's why we may be tempted to think that God's inactivity, from our perspective, that that's unloving. It's like God's not doing anything. So we begin to think, he's not loving me. He's not answering my prayers. When God doesn't respond according to our timetable, We begin to entertain thoughts that he's not loving, but his inactivity, according to our schedule, is actually him loving us. We think that he's being inactive, but he's actually working. He's loving us. He's working behind the scenes for our good. He doesn't always answer right away just to help refocus us on him. Abraham and Sarah remind us that the life of discipleship is really a lot of trusting Jesus now and understanding him later. If you've been a Christian for very long, you know that Jesus is not in the habit of revealing all the reasons why he is doing what he is doing in your life. And if you don't come to grips with that, you'll live a bitter life. Jesus is not in the habit of revealing what he's doing in your life all the time. And if you don't come to grips with that, you'll begin to live a bitter life. Following Jesus is really a lot about trusting Jesus now, today, and understanding him later. Christian life is not about trying to figure out what God is doing. It's about faith. It's not about trying to make sense of things. It's about trust. And when God finally reveals, either in this life or in the next, when he finally reveals what he was doing when we were so perplexed and stressed out, we will actually discover that his purposes are far more glorious than we could have ever dreamed or imagined. And so all of the unplanned detours of our lives are actually planned by God by a loving caring father and that's why you can trust what God says over what you see you can trust what God says in his word over what you see so when you find yourself moving in a direction that you never planned like Sarah and Abraham trust that your heavenly father has something much better in mind for you that you could never have even dreamed up if you tried. Even if you prayed for something better, God knows what is best. Your heavenly father knows what is best. Tim Keller says, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knows. We've all been at that place in our lives where we thought we knew what we was best and we pleaded with God to give us our requests to answer our prayers. I can't tell you how many times in my life something felt right to me and I begged God to bring it about. And I begged Him and begged Him and He didn't. Why? Because He's in control. And only He truly knows what is best for my life. I think I know what's best for me, but honestly, I'm just an idiot, for reals. So what Tim Keller says is very profound. God will either give us what we ask, or he will give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knew. So God is either going to give you what you ask him for, or he's going to give you what you would ask him for if you knew everything that he knew about the future. So if we could really see the future and we could all know what God knows, it would probably change the way we pray. And the good news of the gospel is that God is going to give us what is best for us. And certainly Abraham wrestled with this, but in the end, he had to trust God. He had to trust that God had something better in mind for him, and we do too. Look at verse 13. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham and company were looking forward to the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem. They could have gone back to their own land if that's what they really wanted and were looking for. Abraham could have gone back to Ur, where he came from, if that's what he was really looking for. These people knew that they were just strangers in exiles making their way to heaven. We're we're following Jesus. Following him means that we're moving. It implies a journey. We're on a journey to the city that is to come. These people desired a better country, the preacher says. They desired the heavenly one where God is, where they would glorify God and enjoy him forever. They had their eyes on the city that is to come. They were looking forward to the resurrection Abraham really believed that God was able to raise a dead person to life again. That's why he almost killed his son Isaac. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones." Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, so he was willing to sacrifice him. He was willing to sacrifice the one through whom God had said his future offspring would come. And so God took Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he took them to places that they would not choose to go, and they had to trust that God would keep his promises about their offspring inheriting the land. And this is very instructive for us. While we seek to follow Jesus faithfully in this world, many times we find ourselves in desperate situations and moments that we would not choose. And so God leads us in this way, and he leads us to these places because he has purposes for us that are far beyond us. What many times appear as misfortunes later end up being God's mercies to us it's just hard to see it in the moment because trusting Jesus is hard what many times appear as misfortunes that come into our lives they later end up being God's mercies to us it's just hard to see it in the moment because trusting Jesus is hard and that was certainly the case with Joseph think about all he went through Years and years and years and years of waiting. Joseph reminds us that waiting on Jesus is a very common experience for disciples. We wait for direction because we don't know which way God is leading us. We wait many times for his purposes to be revealed. We wait for him to provide what we lack. And while we wait, what are we called to do? To trust, to rest, to believe, to have faith. Jesus knows what is best for us. And sometimes, like Joseph, our circumstances actually get worse, not better. But Joseph, think about Joseph. Was Joseph bitter at the end of his life? No. Think about the hardships that he endured and be amazed that Joseph was not bitter at the end of his life. His brothers betrayed him. He was separated from his father who loved him very much. He was forced into slavery. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife while trying to do the right thing. And then to top it all off, he spent many, many, many years locked up in prison for a crime that he did not commit, somewhere around 13 or 14 years in prison. And the preacher tells us that Joseph was not bitter at the end of his life. At the end of a life of much suffering and waiting and waiting and waiting, Joseph was still keyed in on one event, the preacher says, the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, redemption. He was focused on how God would redeem his people and set them free from slavery in Egypt because God had promised he would do that. Joseph wasn't bitter that his life wasn't any better. Let me say that again because you may need to hear it again. Joseph wasn't bitter that his life wasn't any better. And so like Joseph, we have to rest knowing that Jesus does know what is best for us and for our hearts. So when you don't understand God's ways, trust his word. When you can't see his purposes, trust His promises. And that's exactly what Moses did. Look at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth Than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Moses' family hid him when he was a baby, and they did this trusting that Yahweh would watch over him. They were not afraid of what Pharaoh had said about killing the Hebrew babies. But then, after growing up in Pharaoh's house, Moses left to go be with his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews. Instead of living in the lap of luxury, Moses chose to be mistreated. He chose to suffer with God's people. He chose suffering over the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, why? Moses had it all. Why did he leave the palace? Why why did he leave the treasures of Egypt behind? Because he considered that knowing Jesus was a better treasure than all the riches of Egypt. Moses was looking forward to the real reward. Being with God and enjoying Him forever. And by faith, Moses kept the Passover, which is pointing to Jesus. And he left Egypt, and he didn't fear for his life. He kept his eyes not on what he could see, but on what he could not see. The preacher of Hebrews tells us he kept his eyes on the invisible God. He didn't keep his eyes on what he could see. He kept his eyes on what he could not see, the invisible God. Moses was looking to Jesus, his treasure, This is why Moses chose suffering with God's people over the pleasures of sin and over the treasures of Egypt because he knew that God was more satisfying. And that is exactly what the Hebrews needed to hear because they were suffering for their faith too. See, something happened with Moses that altered what he saw. His vision was changed. He looked at the treasures of Egypt. He looked at the fleeting pleasures of sin, and he chose suffering. Now, why? How? Because he had a far superior pleasure in sight, the invisible God. Moses is basically saying, why would I choose temporary earthly pleasures over 10 million pleasures forevermore with god for reals choosing the fleeting pleasures of sin over never ending pleasure with jesus no way moses knew what david would later say david would later say in psalm 16 you have made known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures Forevermore. Not fleeting pleasures. Pleasures forevermore. We need to hear this again, Grace. Sin is fleeting. That pleasure is fleeting. It disappears. It goes away. It doesn't last. The pleasures of sin only last for a season. And they are a lie. Don't be Fooled, the pleasure that sin offers is fleeting. But with Jesus, there are pleasures forevermore. Never-ending pleasures in God's presence. Fullness of joy. Don't believe the lies of sin. Trust what God says. And so whatever's happening in your life right now, whether you're being tempted to play with sin, you want it, whatever it is. You want it, you're being drawn to it. Or whether you're just trying to stay alive one more day. You're thinking, it's not even the the temptations of this world. It's just, I don't think I can make it one more day. Whatever your situation, wherever you are, trust what God says over what you see. Trust what God says in his word over what you see, over what you feel. Trust what God says. At the very beginning of this book, the sermon that is the book of Hebrews, the preacher told us that God has now spoken to us in his son. The invisible God has now spoken to us in his son, Jesus. That means that everything about the gospel is true. And everything about eternity with Jesus is true and everything about being with God and and enjoying Him forever and ever and ever. It's true. Pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. And that means then that because of Jesus, you can trust God over what you see. Trust God if you're being tempted with the fleeting pleasures of sin. Trust God if you're suffering And you don't even think you can make it one more day. Trusting Jesus is hard. Let's just be honest. But God in his grace gave us a meal to eat so that our faith in him can be strengthened again and again and again. The Lord's Supper is given to us so that we may be reminded and so that we may hear once again that God is faithful, that He is trustworthy. It's given to us so that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we look to Jesus as we celebrate His life, death, and resurrection. In the Lord's Supper Jesus offers us himself with all of his benefits and we receive him by faith. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus comes to us and he offers us himself with all of his benefits and we receive him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy. And we ask you to Forgive us of the many times that we doubt. We've seen your goodness. We know you're trustworthy. We know that you're faithful. We're the problem. You're not God. And we confess that this morning. Forgive us. Forgive us for chasing after the fleeting pleasures of sin and trying to find enjoyment and satisfaction, Lord. We know that they don't last. And yet we still pursue them. You're not the problem. We are. You are the treasure. You are the fountain of living water. We're the problem because we go to the toilets of the world to drink when you offer us life, water, to drink and drink and say, ah, I'm satisfied. And so we confess that this morning. We choose other things besides you, and we ask you to forgive us. And now we want to taste and see that you are good. We want to feed on Christ by faith this morning and all of his benefits, his love, his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy. And we want our hearts to be strengthened again this morning, Father. Would you do that by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.